0: Well, we can feel it getting closer. It has been so fun to walk with you through the Christmas story, and we will get to the, the, the big birth this Christmas Eve, and then the big appearance of the angels in just a day after that on Christmas Day. But before that, we have one more story to go through, and it's a good one. Uh, everything up to this point has been a building of anticipation at two boys who are going to be born. Uh, first, one of them was announced by an angel that he would be born to a woman who had never borne a son and was past years of childbearing, but she would have a son who would be great. He would be a prophet of the Most High. And then another son promised to a woman who was a virgin, who had never known a man, and she would bear a son who would be the heir of King David and the Savior of all mankind, would even be the Son of God Himself. Then the two mothers meet and they meet in a way that shows us that Mary's baby is going to be greater than John's baby, or sorry, Elizabeth's baby whose name is John that John, when he grew up, would pave the way for Jesus, who would be greater after him. And then Mary sings this wonderful song. All of this has been built up to, these boys are coming, and when they do, the Lord is going to do something great. And at long last, one of them is going to be born. And there will be that same sense of anticipation leading us to ask, what is it that God is doing? What is this wonderful work here? Who is this baby John and who will be this baby Jesus? A few things you need to know before we go into the story. The baby's dad's name is Zechariah, and he's going to have a a baby named John, his wife Elizabeth. And when the angel appeared to Zechariah to tell him the baby would come, Zechariah didn't believe him. And so the angel said, well, if you want a sign, I'll give you one. You will be unable to speak until my words come true. Now that's going to circle back here. We're going to find Zechariah unable to speak, just as was promised. And some wonderful things are going to happen. Let's read first the story, verses 57 to 66. And then... After that, we will come back and read the prophecy that Zechariah gives, verses 67 to 80. Look at verse 57 with me. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke. Blessing God and fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. The words of the Lord. So, so far, two things are going on. The angel's words are confirmed, and that sense of anticipation we have, who will this child be, is even bigger than it has been before. So, evidently, Elizabeth had kept herself hidden for a while, Now, back earlier in the story, we learned that she indeed kept herself hidden when she was pregnant. Thus, the Lord has blessed me and taken away my reproach. And we learn now, as the baby is born in verse 57, and in verse 58, her neighbors and relatives hear that the Lord has shown her great mercy, evidently they didn't even know that she was pregnant. And so you can, if you could just imagine, let's say you have a a sister or an aunt who is in her late 70s early 80s never bore a child and you hear on the group text thread not she's pregnant but she had a baby we would be amazed right and this is the amazement that goes through the town the chatter is going quickly her friends and her relatives hear about this wonderful thing that God is doing and so they all gather around. Eight days later, it's time to circumcise the child, and everybody is there for the party. Like this is the biggest circumcision party there has ever been, because we gotta see this baby. We gotta see what God is doing here. And so it comes time to name the child, and by default, they're gonna name him Zechariah after his dad. And Mary, or, I'm sorry, Elizabeth says, "No, we want to name him John." And then we learn that Zechariah evidently was not just made mute by the angel, unable to speak, but evidently he was made deaf as well because they signed to him, what do you want the child to be called? And he asked for a writing tablet. Uh, Evidently then he could not have heard Elizabeth say his name will be John. So they don't expect that he's going to confirm what Elizabeth says. And so he writes, his name is John, same thing that Elizabeth said. And so they're like, oh, wow, like that's big. And so word just goes through the town God is doing something really amazing here, really incredible here. And so the question they start asking is, what will this child be? Like his mother and father without talking to each other, came to the same name, and evidently the name was given by an angel. And this is a miraculous birth. And what will this child be? Well, now the angel's words are fulfilled, right? The child is born, and he's been named John. And so Zechariah's tongue is loosed. And he doesn't just jump up and say, hey, I'm back, everybody. Right? Where's the food? Let's eat. Right? No, he blesses the Lord. And Filled with the Spirit, he gives prophecy. The prophecy answers the question. They're asking, What then will this child be? And Zechariah is going to give them the answer. That's what we see now in verses 67 and following. Let's read that together. What then will this child be? And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The words of the Lord. So through that prophecy, the Spirit of God calls us to Jesus Christ by showing us who he is and what he came to do. This is a prophecy that ultimately points us to Jesus. You may have noticed it's divided into two fairly neat sections, one sentence, verse 68 to 75, is all about Jesus, who he will be, why he has come. And then a second sentence verses 76 to 79 tell us about John. Who will John be and what will he do? So we are getting a window this morning into who Jesus is, why he came to earth, and what John's role is preparing him. So we'll spend most of our time talking about Jesus, and then at the end we will talk about how John prepares us for him. As we look into what this prophecy tells us about Jesus we might then notice that some of what he has to say, he's already said, and some of it is new. Uh, By that, I mean several of the themes here Luke has been harping on the whole time, and they will sound very familiar to you. Uh, For instance, we see in verse 69 that Jesus will be a ruler that comes from King David. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've heard a lot about that, haven't you? Uh, We'll see also in verse seventy. 72, and 73, that Jesus will be a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. You've heard a lot about that in the last few weeks. heard a lot about it last week, right? Luke is bringing those themes back again. He teaches through repetition and we will continue seeing many of those things through the gospel. And so what I'm going to do then is I'm going to take those two and just, just push them aside because we've covered them so much. And we're going to look at all the things in this prophecy that are new, that we haven't talked about a lot yet about Jesus. I'm going to reduce it down to one sentence for you that we can break into four parts. And if you'd like to write them down, write it down in four parts. And then we'll break down each part of it. The whole sentence is this. In Jesus, God has come to save us from our enemies by securing our forgiveness so that we can serve him without fear. Here are the four parts then. First part, in Jesus, God has come. In Jesus, God has come. Second part, to save us from our enemies. Third part, by securing our forgiveness. And fourth part, so that we can serve him without fear. That is one look at who Jesus is, what he has came to do. What he came to do, and what we will marvel at him for this morning. Now, as we dive into that, you need to know, almost all the application has to do with how we should feel. Uh, Zechariah's response is, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, right? So, so what you won't hear in this text is, here are three keys to getting along with your family on Christmas dinner, right? You're not going to get that. But, If you'll receive the message and if it leads your heart to feel desire and love the things that it is aiming for you to feel desire and love, your Christmas dinner will look different with your family, right? So let these words change your heart and see how that changes your outside behavior and your actions. Let's dive into the first part this morning. In Jesus, God has come. We see that very clearly in verse 68, the second half, he has visited us, All right. You may have visitors coming in for Christmas, and what are they doing? They're coming to visit. You may go visit somebody else. You're going to them to visit. In Jesus, God has come and visited us. He is here with us. That tells us a little about who He is. Who is Jesus? He's God, and He came to earth to be with us and to visit us. Other gospels will say this differently. John will say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, right? That is Jesus. And then Jesus will walk the earth and say, I and my Father are one. Or Philippians 2 will say that he had divine nature and came and took on human form, the form of a servant. Or Colossians will say that he is the image of the invisible God. He is God that we can see. Or Peter will say that he is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So who he is, is he is God and he's come to visit us. If you're just starting to understand Jesus, you're, just, you're interested in Him, you want to know what He's like, that's probably the first building block, probably the most basic thing. And everything else about Him, you can build on that. He, he is God, and He's come down to earth to be with us. This is different from the modern American idea that He was a good teacher, and that was it. No, the Bible says He was more than a good teacher. He was God, come to earth. And it's different from what the the religion of Islam teaches, that he was a great prophet, and the prophet that came after him was Muhammad, and that was the greatest prophet. Now, Jesus was not just a great prophet. He was a great prophet, but he was more. He was God made man. And this is different from what the Watchtower Society teaches the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was a man who became Lord of humanity but was not God. And the Bible says very clearly here that in Jesus, God has come to visit his people. So in contrast from every other religion in the world, we teach Jesus is God made man. And that's the building block of everything else that he is. And we say it so much that, that it almost doesn't feel amazing anymore We kind of have to pause and think on it and then realize that that really is actually very incredible, right? And and so I was talking with some friends this week, and one question I've been asking people is, what's your favorite thing about Christmas? Um, And just so you know, church family, your favorite things about Christmas are giving gifts and the songs. Every member of Calvary that I asked that to said one of those two things. Uh, Except for one who was talking about the songs and then um, just like got teary-eyed, and said, I mean, I just can't believe that, that He came. Like, God came to earth to, to save us, like for us. And really, that's, that's how we ought to feel about this, right? We ought to get a little teary-eyed when we think about that. God on high came and was made low, and that's amazing enough, but He was made low to, to be with us, and then to walk the earth with us. There's something incredible. And so we can see why Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's willing to come and and to be with his people. So that's the first part. Why did he come? That's the second part. The reason he came was to save us from our enemies. We see that several ways. The way that verse 68 continues, he has visited and redeemed his people. Also, we see the word salvation a lot in verse 69. He is a horn of salvation. In verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. In verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And in verse 77, John will bring the knowledge of salvation. So, why Jesus came, he came to save us from our enemies. Now, Ancient Israel would have been tempted to hear in that, and they did hear in that, national enemies, right? As he saved us from the Egyptians and from the Philistines, he will save us from Rome and he's going to come to save us from Rome. But Zechariah's wording here tells us that this is about more than that. In fact, verse 77 talks about knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So this isn't about national salvation. It's about salvation from bigger enemies than that. Like the Genesis 3 enemies, the serpent that crept into the garden and has a stranglehold on humanity now. The sin that we committed with God, against God when we took that forbidden fruit and continue to receive autonomy and live in our own way. And the death that entered the world in Genesis 3. There are great enemies and those are the enemies that Jesus has come to save us from. That's why we still rejoice today in the salvation that Jesus brings, even though we do not consider Rome at all a threat to us because we have bigger enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And those are the enemies that Jesus came to save us from. So what this means, essentially, he talks about being delivered from the hands of our enemies, being rescued from it, being redeemed from our enemies. That means that if you're a Christian, then before you came to Christ, where we were is in the hands of Satan and in the hands of our our sin and in the hands of of death. And to some degree, we knew it, right? We know, I'm going to die one day, and I don't know what's going to happen after that, but I'm scared of it. And I want to kick that bad habit but either I can't kick it or I just replace it with another bad habit, right? Like I, it's like I'm a slave to sin, like it has me in its hands. And we were even in the hands of Satan, the, the great puppet master orchestrating so many things in the world for the destruction of all humanity. And so that meant that every good and bad thing in your life was puppet mastered by this Satan for the end of your destruction and what Jesus did was free us from those enemies so that now we're in the hands of God and so every good and bad thing in your life is ordained divinely now by a God who means good for all his people now we can say all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and, and now we're freed from sin, so it doesn't have a power over us anymore. Now we have strength by the Spirit of God to choose to do right. And that's why so many of us have seen spiritual growth in our lives. And now death has no stranglehold over us, for we have been promised resurrection and eternal life. So even when we grieve our believing loved ones, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope. And we say, oh, death, where is your sting? Right? So, we've been freed from those enemies. We need to notice that this is not something that the Lord did for the angels who fell. Uh, Now, we sinned against God, and we brought all of those enemies upon ourselves. We chose them. Uh, We often forget that many of the angels in heaven did the same thing, right? Rebelled with Satan. They rebelled against their maker and are condemned forever. We call them demons now, the greatest of them, Satan. And there is no word in the Bible that God ever became an angel to save the fallen angels. And we don't consider him unjust for that, do we? No, they they saw God on high and they rebelled against him and it's right that he condemns them. And what we learn from that is that if he didn't owe them salvation, he did not owe us salvation either. We too saw the glory of God. We too rebelled against him. We too brought death, condemnation, destruction, and slavery upon ourselves. But where he passed over every fallen angel, he looks to us and he says, I will become one of them and save them. And there is just something in the nature of God that moved him to want to do that, to save us and bring us back to him. And Christian, your every blessing and life and any joy and warmth you feel now as you sense that rests on that deep divine nature of God that says, I love them and I'm going to become one of them to save them. That's why he came. He came to save us from our enemies. And that is why we say along with Zechariah, blessed be the God and Father of Israel. Mm. Okay, next. How did he save us from our enemies? Uh, By securing our forgiveness. That's how he did it. There's the third part. He did this by securing our forgiveness. And we see that in something we've looked at already in verse 77. John brings knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. That's how Jesus saved us from our sins, by securing our forgiveness for us. He does not say in this prophecy how Jesus is going to do that. How is he going to secure forgiveness for us? But Luke will tell us later. Later, it will be the Passover and Jesus will have gathered his disciples and he will have bread and he will have wine and he will take the bread and break it and say, this is my body for you. And then he will take the cup and they'll drink of it and say, this is my blood for you and it's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then his body will be fastened to a cross and his blood drained out of him. And he will willingly be executed by Roman torture, by crucifixion. And they will have just heard the words, my body, my blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And that's how he secured our forgiveness for us. The wage of sin is death. We were once slaves to death. The judgment of God rightly falls on all those who choose sin against him. And so he puts himself there on the cross willingly and says, I do this for you. So so there he is in the place of anyone who trusts in him, anyone whose faith is in, in him. Saying, this is my body, this is my blood for you. Then our forgiveness for sins is secured. Now... We're free from our enemies, aren't we? Now we're free from sin. We don't have to worry about the the penalty that we will have to pay for our sin at the end of all things. Now, because he rose from the dead and guarantees eternal life for all who follow him, we don't have to worry about death and we don't have to be afraid of death. And now, because the clutches that Satan had to sin are open and freed, we can run back to him and be freed from our enemies by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. That's the message we preach here every Sunday. And my call to you is the same as it is every week. Put your faith in this Jesus. If you're willing to look to him believing he did that for you and willing to receive him as all that he is, then he is yours if you'll receive him. You'll find their forgiveness. You'll find their eternal life. You'll find their freedom from sin and the ability to say no to it and so much more. And so you'll be saying, along with Zechariah, blessed be the Lord, the God and Father of, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. I said it so many times I forgot how it went. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Okay, and then what's the result of that? If, if we are freed from our enemies and our forgiveness is secured, where's that lead? What's God's end goal for that? And we see the answer to that in verse 74. That we, being the delivered from the hands of our enemies, and here it is, we might serve him without fear receiving that gospel message, receiving that forgiveness, and being freed from your enemies, that leads to you being able to serve God without being afraid of anything, of sin, of death, of Satan, of God himself, free of fear. You can have a relationship with him now, and you can serve him. That's the end of all things there. The issue here is that even if you believe that there's no real right and wrong out there, that it's all relative and my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, or even if you believe that you're a good enough person to go to heaven, no matter what you believe, if you believe that you're, you've done right before God and have earned righteousness before him, you have a thing in your heart called a conscience and it knows better. And so you can believe in your head and Say with your mouth, yeah, those things don't matter. I don't need to be reconciled to God. But there's just a little whisper in here that's like, "Mm, it's not that way. And you just try to silence it, right? That's how the conscience works. And unless you can successfully silence that, it will nag and nag and nag at you. And that memory of that thing you did will come back. And that sense of shame over some things that you have done that you insist were right to do, that your heart just knows that's not the case, will come back and back at you. And next thing you know, the thought of going to church, being with God, being with God's people, the thought of praying to God or any kind of closeness with God has you kind of going, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Right? This is why so many people don't go to church, because they don't feel like they're good enough to go to church. Now, plenty of people don't go to church because they don't think the church is good enough for them, but plenty of people also don't go to church because they don't think they're good enough for God or they're good enough to go to church, to be with God. And that's how the conscience works when we are trying to deny that we have sinned before Him. And and not handling that, not dealing with that. And so, if that's you, I can tell you what you're going to do. The more God pursues you, the more you're going to run from Him. And that's how well-meaning people often wind up in such horrible situations, because as God pursues you, someone that you are afraid of is pursuing you. Now, what do you do when someone afraid of you is pursuing you? or someone you're afraid of is pursuing, you you run from them, right? And so that is why we see so many people that God is reaching out to and they are just running from Him because that conscience is telling them you have done wrong before that God, you have made that God your enemy, and as much as we try to deny it, it is true. Love and fear are enemies in that way. You can't love Him if you're afraid of Him. Now, here's why I say all that. That may have hit emotional chords with some of you. If you feel any of that, Jesus died so that you don't have to feel that way anymore. He died so that you can serve him without fear. Right? So that so you can look back at whatever that is that your conscience keeps nagging you about and say, Jesus, my faith is in you. And so I know that's paid for. Now, free from fear, you don't have to be afraid of that God that's pursuing you anymore, do you? Now you can come on the week before Christmas and just shout out, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, right? Or peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Right? Because we are back in his arms and we no longer have to be afraid of him. This is what God wants. He wants you and him in a real relationship together, where you see how big and great he is, and you tremble with happiness before him, but you're not afraid of him. Where you are giving and giving and giving to the poor, to foreign missions, to the church, all kinds of stuff with happiness in your heart, and no sense of obligation, and oh, I've got to do this, otherwise things aren't going to go well. Where you are singing and worshiping with joy in your heart, and no terror before this, God. Where you're walking in obedience to his ways because you love him and you love his ways. He doesn't want us serving him out of terror, out of obligation. He wants us to serve him without fear and to, and to love him. And he made that possible by sending his son Jesus to live, to die, to rise and ascend up into heaven. And so if you would receive that Jesus, you can serve him without being afraid of him. You can be both under him and filled with joy in him at the same time. So in that way, there are really two barriers between us and God, and Jesus takes care of both. right, Isaiah says your sins have made a separation between you and God, right? So we've sinned against him, so his back is to us. But not just that, we're afraid of him, and so our back is to him. Right, And and so without Jesus, the way things stand is he's against us and we're against him. And we talk often about how what God did in Jesus Christ was turned toward us. Now he is looking to us and now he offers a free offer of forgiveness. But that only takes care of half of the problem, doesn't it? Because here we are with our backs still toward him because we're still afraid of him. And so what he has made it possible to do is to serve him without fear, to turn back around to him, and now there's reconciliation. So for some of us, what we simply need is to no longer be afraid of God, but to look at him as the loving and graceful father who sent his son to die for us, who we can trust for all of our forgiveness. That's what Jesus Christ has made possible. We can serve him without fear. This is also because we're delivered from the hands of other enemies, like the fear of death. Uh, You can't serve Jesus faithfully if you're afraid to die. He says this, all right, uh, anyone who seeks his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will, will find it, right? So, Put that in simple terms, and if if you're afraid to die, you can't serve Jesus well. And you, you wind up losing your life trying to protect it. So how can we then not be afraid of death anymore and be willing to serve Jesus without fear of something that, given enough time, will come for every one of us? Well, because he's freed us from death. Right? So it no longer has a grip on us because we got the promise of resurrection from the dead and eternal life in him so we can go knowing we're going home to God and we're coming back in a better body than we left with. Well, now that's no longer something to be afraid of, right? And so if we can remember that and our freedom from death, then we can serve him without fear. There's a, there's a stark example of this that happened when I was in high school. Um, And it it broaches a subject that's hard for a lot of us to talk about. This is the subject of school shootings, which hardly any of us know what to think about the fact that that happens. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I think I was a junior, when the first big school shooting happened in Columbine, Colorado, Two young men, some of you are my age, not in your heads. You remember that too. Uh, Two, uh, they were students. Walked in with big trench coats and lots of guns underneath them, and just massacred so many people in their school. And for me, at that age, those were those were my peers. Like I was the same age as those kids who who had died there, and in close age to the kids who had done it. And a few years later, I was reminded of something that we often forget about that day. Uh, They were targeting Christians. That day, you remember that? Um, It's easy to forget that now. There's been so many of them, but those those guys were targeting Christians. And uh, the father of one of the victims, one of the girls who was killed that day, uh, came and visited our college campus uh, a couple years later. And uh, it was you know super emotional, as you might imagine. He showed a lot of pictures. He talked about her, Uh, and he told the story of of how she died. And it's just amazing. Uh, She was a high school girl. They walked in to the library where she was got out their big guns and said, if you're a Christian, stand up. We're going to kill you. And this girl said, I'm a Christian. Who does that? Somebody who's not afraid to die, right? So we, being freed from our enemies can serve him without fear. Somebody can walk through those doors and say the same thing and we can all stand up. Yep, ready to go. Because we're freed from our enemies and we can serve him without fear. So that's who Jesus is. And that's what he came to do. He came to free you from all of those clutches, from sin, from death, from from Satan, from all of it so that now you can have a real relationship with him and serve him with a fearless courage. There's who Jesus is. Let's look at John for a minute. So the last sentence is dedicated to John. It's kind of funny. John is born, and his dad gives a prophecy about him that is mostly about the other baby and not about him. All right, so I hope his feelings aren't hurt, but that's the way it is. Sorry, John. So John... His job was to preach Jesus' salvation before he came. That was his role. Right? Jesus is coming. He's going to save us. Here, how he's gonna, here's how he's going to save us. So he is then probably the first true gospel preacher even to name Jesus as the salvation from our sins and identify him as that. He is a prophet of the Most High. He goes before the Lord to prepare his ways. And in 77, he gives those people. Knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. So, if you're alive that day, you find salvation in Jesus. And you know that because John told you beforehand, right? So, John's the gospel preacher. And the image of that, that Zechariah gives, is a sunrise. He says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. In verse 78 to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet to the way of peace. So you got this picture of a sunrise, right? It's dark, but now it's getting light. So now we have the light and warmth we need for life, and now we have guidance because the sun is coming up. This is picking up on imagery that the prophets and others say with Jesus being the light of the world, right? Uh, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, right? Or um, in him was light and the light was the light of man, light was life of man. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is then a blazing light like the sun that gives life to all that he touches and gives guidance to all that he touches. So in him we have life and we have guidance, That's Jesus, the noonday sun beaming down on you. You can see where you're going. The grass is growing. That's Jesus in your heart. John is not the noonday sun, he's a sunrise, right? Going from darkness to light. And so I take from that just one point when when Christ is preached and received, it feels like a sunrise. And some of you might connect with that. Right? If Jesus himself, when he's present, is the noonday sun shining down on us, the, the gospel being preached and received is, is like a sunrise in the heart. And maybe you've seen a sunrise this time of year. It's late enough that probably we're all awake when the sun rises now. Uh, if you walked out this morning into a field at 7.30 in the morning... You'd have walked out with your biggest coat on and you'd still be standing there like this because it's still cold. And it's pitch black outside at 7.30 in the morning. And you're thinking to yourself, how has the cold and the darkness gone on this long? Like it's not supposed to happen this late. The sun should be up by now, but you're just walking and kind of confused by the fact that it's still dark and cold outside. And you stand out there in that cold, lifeless field where nothing is happening and everything is dead all around you. And then you just start to see the, the color of the sky get warm right and the clouds are starting to take their colors and you know what that means right ah yeah and then your heart is warmed and then you just get a little glimmer at 758 that first peak of the sun comes over the horizon now there's a feeling with that right and and you get up early to see the sunrise you never regret it man it's a good feeling Now, there's light shining, and soon everyone will be able to see their way around, and so the cars will be all over the highway, and the birds will be making songs, and there'll be life everywhere, and you know that that is coming. There will be life soon, there will be guidance from the sun soon, and you feel it coming up. If you connect with any of that, you probably recognize that that's something of what it feels like to hear Jesus preached. You might come into church, and not your body, but your heart is like wrapped up in a winter coat. Like, how has the cold and the darkness gone on for so long? And then the word is unfolded, and the gospel is preached, and it's like the sun coming up in your heart. And some of us, I think, come back every week just because it's a cold, dark world and we just want to see the sunrise once a week in our hearts. Now, if you feel any of that, I have really good news for you. If the preaching of the word, when you see Christ in it, it feels like a sunrise, the good news is that one day Jesus himself is going to shine on you like the noonday sun. The cold and the darkness aren't going to be here forever. And that's why it says, of the last day and of what happens in our hearts when we receive Christ, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If you have felt any comfort, any joy this morning, all you saw was the sky get warm for a minute. One day, the noonday sun is going to shine on you. Now that's good news. It's not always like that when it's preached. Sometimes the preacher goes on a rabbit trail and you're like, where are you? And sometimes our attentions go all over the place, but sometimes we see Jesus in it and it warms our hearts. So there's what we can gather from Zechariah's story and his prophecy that he gives there. We come back to see the birth of Jesus and what it means for us. Uh, Let's pray and apply these things into our hearts and then we'll go on and sing.